You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Ryan, look at that flow. Holy cow, you're growing your hair out, huh? Yeah, it's almost as long as your beard. Uh, not quite. This is uh, three months work. It's, uh, <laughs> it's been pretty nasty. I'm getting the, uh, the old food and the beard stage. I ate lunch yesterday. And I was at home and my girlfriend came home like an hour after I'd finished lunch and I still had some lunch in my beard and I didn't even realize it. So I got to get to work on that. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> this is my question is what, what house are you at? I saw like you have a house now back in Canada. You have a house uh, in the Northeast. How, which houses are you? Which, how many houses do you have these days, Ryan? So we have three houses. Um <laughs> We have like our house in uh, near Toronto that we used to live in. It's actually gets rented out now. So um, we don't ever go there anymore. Um, And then our main place is here in Quebec, which is like, yeah, our main spot. And then I've got a house down in the Adirondacks, which is like kind of a project house. It's like renovating it. And um, yeah, it's only like two hours away from us here. So it's like a little bit of a cottage slash like, training center but we can't get there right now because the borders are still closed so oh that's frustrating because i suppose don't you spend a lot of your summers there training normally um yeah like we we try to i mean it's we spend all seasons there because like the skiing there is really awesome and yeah the trail running is awesome but it's also really good here too so it's um it's okay it's just different it's like you get tired of the same trail networks i guess and so having that option down there is really awesome and the trails there are like the most rugged trails out of anywhere i've ever been so it's like it's insane it's like really good training (laughs) do you get to rent that one out too in the whenever you're not there um we will that's the plan once we're done all like the renovations so we're like about 80 percent done that so nice we um we recently had this conversation actually in our episode that we released today about like what people should do in training up to like potentially West Virginia and all that. And we said people were in, in one of three camps. They were either in the camp of doing completely epic shit right now and they need to recover from it. They're either, you know, out of shape or they're somewhere in between. And I referenced something I wanted to ask about right away is you just got done with this crazy Mount Everest ascending and descending like world record, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Yeah. What, what the heck? What the heck inspired that? Um, so actually it's like pretty popular in the cycling world, uh, right now. And especially with COVID, it's kind of like had this like 400% like increase in number of people doing it. Um, but you can also do it running as well. There's like a category for running, um, which is kind of like, I guess, increasing in popularity. Um, and anyways, yeah, it's just like something I'd kind of wanted to do. I'd actually wanted to go after the 24 hour vert record, which is, uh, around 16,000 meters. Um, but then I was like, oh man, recovering from that is just going to be like kind of brutal. Um, so I figured I would just do the Everest thing, which is like kind of worked out to being about half the amount of time and vert as like the 24 hour record. Um, so I just 
found a good hill nearby and uh, went for it. If you went after the 24, would you do it the same way you did this one? Or would you find something where you could chairlift your gondola down each time? So there's two different categories. There's like a assisted and unassisted. And I would do the unassisted, which is what I did here too. So I would run down. I assume you would handle that category better than most people would in terms of taking damage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. It's all about like your training to get ready for it. And like, also there's a lot of technique and how to, how to run downhill to save your legs. It's not like in a race where you just bomb down the hills. You have to like mm. kind of like run a bit softly and more gingerly. And like, there's like a certain pace that's kind of ideal where you're descending at a good speed, but you're also um, like saving your legs. So I kind of did that. Do you practice that? Is there a specific run you do that on training runs or do you generally hammer? Um, no, I do a bit of everything. Uh, yeah. Actually, a lot of my training is like pretty low intensity. Um, I meant downhill specifically. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I do, I do like all run down easy a lot of the time. Okay. Um, it's kind of like how the run is going or like what I've planned kind of thing. Um and it's like a skill that you have to practice. And sometimes if I have a race coming up where there's a lot of that, uh, that I'll do more specific workouts for it. Um, so you don't treat downhills any different than normal volume. You practice all facets and you change it throughout the season. Yep. I like that. I looked at your uh, heart rate data on that effort on Strava because I was <laughs> curious. I just had to know how hard you worked for how long, and you you kept the throttle pushed down, man. Like you weren't you were messing around. Yeah, from what I could tell, like that had to really. I mean, that had to be a push. How did that feel? Like that last. Uh, I don't know because you weren't running any flats, right? You were either going up or down, but there was nothing in between. So how did that yeah. feel? Like the last few hours. Um. Actually, it felt really good. I was like kind of like right in the um I was like just right at the perfect pace where it was like if I had gone even like five percent harder I would have like really started to feel it and um so yeah I just kind of stayed right there and right to the end uh I felt like I could have kept going um at that speed so you didn't come up short you weren't like dragging yourself in the last few climbs and descents no actually I made us slow down like two or three percent um, on the last like five laps, but I would just take less time at my transition, and so the laps ended up being the same. So for people that don't know, uh, basically what Ryan did is he summited Mount Everest and descended it uh, in the uh, the equivalent distance up and down in the fastest known time in the world. It's basically how I understand it. Yep. So what is that? Twenty nine thousand feet of I guess you'd in meters, but in that 29,000 feet of gain and loss and yeah. what, how long did it take you? Uh, it was 11 hours and 19 minutes was like the final time. What was the longest pit stop you took in between reps? Uh, maybe like 24 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, you, you just, you climbed and descended essentially nonstop for 11 hours. Yeah. 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 I would just, most of my pit stops were like between like three and 10 seconds, I guess. I would just kind of like pick up a bottle and take a drink and put it down and keep going. Yeah. Did you carry bottles the whole time or did you just all in between? No, it was actually, it was kind of cool because you're doing so many laps and they're all like, they were like 19 minutes. So I would just like pick up a bottle and I would just like walk with it. Um, so I'd like pick up my food 
and I'd put it in my waist belt. And then I would pick up my bottle and I would walk with it and just like drink like maybe a third of it. And then I would just put it down wherever I was. So like it was usually like I would make it maybe 50 yards while I was drinking. So I'd put it down. And then the next lap, I would do the same thing. I'd like grab the same bottle, but it's now 50 yards further up the hill. And I would walk another 50 yards and put it down. And I would do that until the bottle was empty. And um, so like there was like... (laughs) There was like this war zone of like empty bottles, like going up the mountain. <laughs> when I was done, I had to like collect them all. That's a nice way of doing it, though. That's yeah, smart. but it was, it was pretty easy, and uh, and I didn't really want to rely on many people. I had um, Lindsay come over and um, some friends come over and just like run a couple laps with me and hang out um, towards the end. But I didn't, I didn't really want to make it like a big, a big thing, especially with COVID and like. Um, trying to reduce the number of um, group gatherings and things like that. So I just uh, kept it pretty low key and just, um, yeah, basically, I mean, I could have done the whole thing just on my own. It, I probably wouldn't have changed the time. Even your, even your post uh, telling everybody about your effort was low key and humble. I feel like, like you really kept this low key. Like we didn't, I don't think some people that read your post realized what you did, I think. Yeah, you know, it was so humble that I think I, I think people would have to know what you were doing. Um, we, I just a personal curiosity off of what your your effort there. We just had a, an episode with Matt Mosman from Endurly, and the topic of fueling during like long efforts came up. What were you yeah. sipping on in those water bottles? What were you taking in during the effort? Um. Oh man, I can't even remember now. Uh, I was drinking a fair bit of maple syrup, um, just because we have like we made our own maple syrup this year, so we have like. We have like gallons of it. I did that growing up, actually. I was excited to see that you did that. Yeah, it was awesome. So we're going to keep doing that, I guess. And um, there's like thousands of maple trees in our property. So it's like, it's great. Um, But other than that, it was like gummies and um, just kind of like, I guess, uh, I was having some ginger ale at one point and... um, and then my friend showed up with uh, some beer, and I was actually just drinking beer a bunch. Like, there was a while where I was drinking like maybe, um, maybe just like like two ounces of beer, like but like every lap of uh, this like delicious local microbrewery IPA, and it was like just so hitting the spot because it was cold, and it was uh, just a little bit you know carbonated, and so that was really nice. We got to figure out if there's some science behind that because, you know, Mark Botchers, who won the Ultravirus, had like five or six IPAs in his effort That's throughout amazing. the Ultravirus. Yeah, yeah, it was like, yeah, he was having one an hour for the last, like, oh, yeah. I don't know, six hours. And he was drinking like 8% alcohol, like a like, tall boy, like 16 ounce cans. Yeah. And he said he felt fantastic. So I'm wondering if this is like, I don't know if maybe I just have been in the dark on this or is this like something that a common practice for you, like Ultra guys or what? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's always there's always the limitation to doing something like that would be access. Um, like normally, if I'm running an ultra, you're like way off in the middle of nowhere, so you're like you can't have access to like a cold, unshaken up like beer because <laughs> like it's impossible. Yeah. But um, because it was like a lap format, like it was easy and uh, it yeah, it was awesome. It was super tasty and like. I guess there's some calories there and it's, it's like nice in your stomach. Um, it was really good. Actually my first ever 24 hour race I did 
uh, on a unicycle. And uh, <laughs> that was your first 24 hours. Yeah. And I was, I think I was like 19 at the time. And I was just, I just would fill my camelback with beer. And I just drank beer the entire race. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't recommend it because um, I was pretty messed up after that. But it just seemed like the thing to do. It's kind of like a party atmosphere, you know. And I was just, um, riding my unicycle around and just drinking beer out of Camelback. It was great. Was it a unicycle ultra or did you choose to ride your unicycle? No, it was like a mountain bike race and I just chose to ride my unicycle. Interesting. Uh, on, on mountain bike trails, you rode yeah. your unicycle? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did that get, get sketchy after several hours of beer Camelback? Oh yeah. Super sketchy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> middle of, like the middle of the night and like your lights are failing and like things are going wrong and um, kind of buzzed. And but You might be the only person to ever do that specific niche event. Yeah, it's true. So I, I have two more questions about the, we didn't come here to talk about the Everest thing, but. No, we didn't. I have two questions now that we've done it. First of all, uh, did you have any longer pit stops? Like, did you go to the bathroom throughout this or change shoes ever? I changed shoes once about halfway through. Um, and I did pee, but I peed while walking. Yeah. So if you're on like a super steep incline, you can actually pee while walking, which is something yeah. I learned like uh, years ago, um, running like an FKT. <laughs> and like, I've just been doing it ever since. It's great. I've actually yeah. peed each time up the mountain in Tahoe. Really? What? Yeah. Exactly. Running? Yeah, because I've had so much caffeine coming in more than any, because I never do long events that like, <laughs> it's always like 40 minutes in. I'm always like, oh man, you know what? I'm not going to hold this for the rest of the race. And I've yeah. generally, each year in Tahoe, I've peed up the switchbacks. Huh. Okay. I've tried so many times to pee mid long run, power hiking. I just can't, like my, I can't do it. What am I, where's like the brain body disconnect I'm having? I yeah, try so hard. My first really, ultra, I could. It was like a switch. You have to just flip, and then and it all and it all works. It takes out. like twenty seconds from the time where I decide, all right, go, until <laughs> my body finally releases. But right, yeah. I I power hiked with it pulled out for a good two minutes once, and it, nothing happened. And I was like, this now I'm just like flashing myself. I just need to. Oh, I just stop. pee my pants. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, if I'm racing, I'll just pee my pants. But yeah, if I'm like not racing, then I won't. Gotcha. <laughs> so, so Ryan, your uh, your unicycle ultra here kind of is a good segue because I I've heard a lot of podcasts with you on like obstacle racing media and stuff, and you guys shoot the breeze. But I've really heard a ton of your like your beginnings here with like sport and all that. And I know you're a unicyclist, and I did a bunch of other things. Um, when did you? What were your what were your sports growing up? Like what what were your first loves? Um, so growing up, I, I mean, I played hockey and, um, like, you know, like normal kid sports, like soccer and basketball and stuff like that. And then, um, and then when I was like 12, I went to like a mountain bike camp and I fell in love with mountain biking, but yeah, not really as an endurance sport, more as just like a session sport. And, um, and that kind of uh, segued into unicycling, which was a lot of fun. And I was doing trials unicycling and mountain unicycling. So basically we would try to find like the gnarliest thing we could do. Um, jumping over picnic tables and jumping off of dumpsters or whatever. 
And I just got really into that for like a lot of years. And I guess concurrently, um, once I started high school, I started um, playing rugby, uh, doing wrestling and playing football. So those were like the three sports I was doing in high school all the while unicycling. And I kind of think what happened was that unbeknownst to me, I was like building an endurance base through those sports and through unicycling. Cause um, I would go out and ride my unicycle for like eight hours, like, you know, on the weekends and like three hours every night. And cause I just loved it so much. And, um, and like your heart rate would get up because you're like jumping and stuff, but um, that was never the goal. So it was like kind of like a really interesting, uh, I guess, like way to build a base because it wasn't like I didn't see it as work. It wasn't like endurance work and it wasn't like something that wasn't enjoyable. It was like, just like really enjoyable um, to me. And, uh, and so I just kept doing it. And then from there... Um, once I stopped unicycling, I started kind of mountain biking again and I started racing mountain bikes. So like more endurance side. And that's when I kind of got into, and so that would have been like, uh, end of high school, beginning of university. So I would have been like, you know, 18, 19 there. And I did my first mountain bike race and like, I won it and I did like, and then I like upgraded categories and then like I won that. And then within like a few months I was like racing pro and, um, just like, yeah loving it and then like getting super into training and reading books and figuring out how to design periodized training plans and do all that stuff and um so i just like got super into that for a bunch of years um throughout my whole like, kind of university career and um and i was i was like good at mountain biking like maybe top five in canada kind of top six or so um but I wasn't able to like ever, I was always going to school and working like two jobs at the same time. And I wasn't able to ever like get the support to just like pursue it full time. Um, because basically unless you were like one of those two guys who were like at the top, like everyone else is either like getting funded by their parents to, you know, race or um, kind of doing what I was doing. And so, after doing that for a while, I was like, okay, well, this isn't working out. Um, and I started just working as an engineer. Uh, and then after doing that for like a year, I found obstacle racing. And it was like um, my buddy who actually organizes mountain bike races found this race and you could win an ATV at it. Like this brand <laughs> new, like super pimp ATV, like alloy wheels. Um, and so uh, I just like, sh I trained for like a month and a half on my lunch breaks um, of my like engineering job. And I would just like run laps of the park. Uh, I'd like run these, like there was like maybe four or 500 meter laps. And every lap I would like jump over a picnic table and I would just like do that for like an hour. And just like, and then I would like some days I would do that or some days I would like jump over a fence every lap or like something like that. And then I showed up at this race and I, I won and, um, won the ATV, which is sweet. And then after that, I was like, like, I don't know, six months later, I was like, Oh, I'll do this world stuff as mother thing. So I like did that and won that. And then it was kind of like a slow progression from there into like, um, Spartan racing and stuff. Cause I didn't even know, like, I still didn't know even that Spartan racing was a thing. It was like, I don't know, I guess if, unless you're like in that world, like you don't, it's easy to just 
have be completely clueless about it. And so right. uh, I got introduced to it and um, did like two, one or two races before World Champs in Vermont that year, um, 2014, and then showed up there, came second, um, when it kind of just went from there, I guess. Do you so, think if they didn't, if that that ATV carrot wasn't dangled in front of you, that you may have never found obstacle course racing, or do you think you were you were destined to find find this avenue? I don't know. That's a I don't, no one's ever asked me that. Um, I think I probably would have found it. And you still have the ATV? Are you still cranking around on that thing? No, I I didn't. I never even rode the thing. I just sold it and I bought a mini excavator and started a trail building company with it. <laughs> so uh, I I like never even put gas in it. So like. Um, I sold it for like nine thousand dollars, and um, and to date, it's like top ten most expensive prize money you've ever won. Yeah, exactly. First <laughs> race, it was twenty three minutes long. The race. <laughs> yeah, cool. it was awesome. There's rumor that you were a stud wrestler in high school as well. You kind of glossed over some of how you did, but did you? Were you a successful wrestler? Yeah, I mean, I only wrestled for two seasons. Um, and I was like fifth in the province, and like I mean, we have the it was the biggest province in Canada, um, definitely the most. So like Offsa, it's called, is like the big competition, and I was like fifth in that, um, competing against guys who had been wrestling since like they were ten, and I was right. um, so yeah, I mean, I was good at wrestling. Uh, I just kind of relied on like I guess my fitness and like uh, <laughs> like um, toughness maybe. Mm-hmm. to to like do well because I, I had like pretty terrible technique and um yeah i was pretty good at wrestling i guess it's one of those sports that people start when they're four and it's so ingrained by the time they're even in high school oh totally yeah there's a lot of uh yeah it's really hard to kind of like break into those sports i guess um yeah and i started wrestling in grade 11 so i wrestled for like grade 11 grade 12 and that's it did you consider university like wrestling in university yeah. Um, yeah, I guess so. I, the school I ended up going to didn't have a wrestling team. And so I just didn't. Yeah. Did you do anything intramural or otherwise in at university? I ran cross country for one season, um, which was pretty funny because I thought cross country was going to be like cross country mountain biking, like running on mountains <laughs> and like <laughs> jumping off of like, you know, like ramps and stuff. And then off road track. Is what it yeah. Yeah, totally. And they show up and we're running on golf courses and I was like, the hell is this bullshit? So I did like three or four races and then, um, I qualified on our team to like, I was like, I think third or fourth fastest guy on the team. But then I was like, yeah, I don't know about this. And then I just like kept mountain bike racing because <laughs> it was like not really what I wanted to be doing. Um, it's it's funny, yeah. like a track runner going to cross country, like this is so gnarly. Like your feet get wet and muddy and the footing is <laughs> terrible and you can get hurt and there's yeah. so much broken running. And then a trail or off-road athlete going to cross country is like, what? what is this? This isn't a sport. Yeah. It's such a... It's such a mindset thing. Yeah, I'm like, why wouldn't we just run on the pavement if we're going to run on like this manicured golf course? Like, it's the same thing. Um, but yeah, yeah. They didn't heckle you to come back. You weren't getting pressure. Like, did you know, like, in that those few races, you're like, yeah, I got a talent here, but like, I just don't like it that much. Or did you? Were you not like that? Did you not come out of your shell run wise yet? Um, 
I think it was like somewhere in between. I was like really not, I was like not focused on it at all. And I was like training 23 hours a week on my bike and then like showing up at these like cross country running practices and um, yeah. And being like one of the faster guys for sure. But like, I had no idea what I was doing from a run perspective. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. A, a question people have a lot about <clears throat> some of the top guys in the sport is, are, are they just in love with OCR or the, are they in love with the process of training towards something they get to be world-class at? And I, I'm not going to speak for you, but it kind of seems like you're the person that whatever sport you could have got to the highest level at, that'd be what you'd pursue. Is that accurate? Um, I think so. Yeah, actually, I think that for me also OCR kind of like embodies what fitness should be. It's like, it's kind of like if you wanted to design the athlete who could do everything and who could excel at any sport and who could kind of show up at, um, any event and do really well, it would be the OCR athlete. And there's like a certain appeal to me in that because I can take that training and I can do whatever I can go. Um, I can do whatever. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So, um, and also it's just, I guess, like you said, suited my history and my body type, um, really well. One thing, you know, a lot of like uh, OCR athletes or endurance athletes, like they have a ball sport background or they ran track or cross country or some of mountain bike. You're not the only one, but like nobody else. I just want to dive in just a little more into this unicycle thing because there's certainly nobody else I know in the sport that like unicycled, uh, definitely not unicycled ultra races on mountain bike trails. Uh, like what, what the heck was going, like you competed in unicycling and you went around, like you trained as a unicyclist and this is what you you woke up thinking about and went to bed thinking about at a certain period of time in your life? Oh, yeah. So, like, there's a community um, within unicycling. So, like, for most people, they pick up a unicycle. Most people don't even learn how to ride it because they can't stay on a task that long. Um, mm -hmm. For, like, the 10% of people who learn how to ride it, they just, like, get as good as, like, being able to get on it and maybe ride down their block and stuff. But there's, like, this – out of those people, there's, like, another – 1% of people who actually like take it like all the way. It's like as much as you can do on like a skateboard, you can do like on unicycle or on a BMX bike or on figure skates. It's like, um, like you can do tons of tricks and you can like jump three feet in the air and you can do three sixties and you can do like essentially what a kickflip is. Um, and then you can do it over stairs and you can grind handrails and like, so like, there's like, uh, there's like a never ending like list of things you can do and learn and progress and, um, things like that. And yeah, there's this whole world of it. And yeah, I would go to competitions. Um, I was world champion a few times in like trials and mountain unicycling and, uh, high jump. I used to have the world record for high jump on a unicycle. It's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it was just like, it was just like a avenue for like progression, I guess, for me. It's funny that most of us get to obstacle course racing and we kind of like apologize to our runner friends or trail friends when we get there. It's like this, this weird niche sport, like, don't worry about it. Like, I don't take it too seriously. Coming off unicycling, this was a bigger, this was a less niche sport for you than what you were used to. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like the opposite. Like unicycling is like super niche, um, such a tight community. And, uh, so it's pretty funny to like, yeah, go to something like OCR where there's like, I mean, 
Well, Sierra is really unique because like there are millions of people worldwide who do it, but like on the elite side of things, it's um, very kind of still growing and uh, a little less known that it's like a legitimate like elite sport. So, mm-hmm. um, whereas I guess a lot of sports are opposite. They have like the highlighted thing is the elite side of things. And then there's like, Oh, but you could also join this like house league and you can, mm-hmm. you know, Oh yeah, sure. You can mm-hmm. still play hockey with your buddies on the weekend if you want. But like what everyone cares about is the NHL and it's like almost the opposite in, in uh, obstacle racing. It's interesting. I saw you for the first time, I think, at, uh, what was that called? Hobie Calls Extreme, Extreme Nation. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't know who you were, <laughs> but you brought a buddy down and you did the the open race and the team race. That, yeah. And, and so afterwards, we all kind of realized very few people at that time were coming into the sport showing any type of like potential, but you checked a lot of the boxes for people we had to be worried about. So we all went home and researched you and I found your, that YouTube video of your like you waking up out of bed, like spooning <laughs> your unicycle and then going out, like doing all that stuff. So it kind of yeah. opened my eyes to to that. So we knew you were going to be someone. We didn't think this is what you'd become. Right. But it was it was interesting coming up that you almost had to have an oddball trait for us to take you seriously coming into the sport. It was like yeah. Max King comes in and he's the scariest person you could see on a trail, but no one really took him seriously because you just knew he's not he's probably not going to come back. Right. But totally. when we found your video, we're like, oh, this guy will embrace something weird. Like, <laughs> he, he's he's going to come back. He's got weird written all over him. <laughs> yeah. And you kind of have to have that. Otherwise, you're not going to go out yeah. and like yeah. practice a crawl and practice right. a carry. So it was interesting and, like, seeing that. Roll on your lawn to get really good at not being dizzy. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's not something that you do unless there's that little bit of, uh, I can embrace some weird stuff. So yeah, totally. that was our red flag. Like we knew about your treadmill challenge and we knew about your summer death race, but it was the unicycling like, oh shoot, there's, there's that one missing component that he has. That's not good. We, I'd have rather seen that you had qualified for like Olympic trials than that you were good at unicycling. Right. That's funny. <laughs> uh, that, that guy you brought down to Canada, I, I always kind of assumed you were going to bring him back at some point or someone like that. Uh, almost everyone else in the sport has brought in a buddy at some point, except you. And yeah. I, and I, I don't really have a point there other than that. Like, is there no one around you that embraces what you embrace, or is it that you live a certain life? I mean, I guess you brought your now wife. Yeah, I bring Lindsay in. I mean, yeah, she's done okay. But yeah, I, I guess you've brought the best <laughs> companion in. But outside of that, like, is there just no one around you that has embraced it, or is it just like no one cares up where you live? Um, so where I used to live, like near Toronto, it's actually, there's not a lot of people who are like really that active. It's kind of like, I would be the only one out running trails or things like that. Mm-hmm. And then there'd be like, you'd show up to a trail race and there'd be like 50 people at the whole event. So it was just like pretty small. And like there were Spartan races, but I mean, it was like, it was like an extreme case of like, like 10 people taking it seriously. And then like, you know. 5,000 just like out for the post-race beer. Um, I mean, like all my, all my friends are like super fit. I mean, Lindsay used to live um, with myself and two other friends, one of which was the guy that I brought down to the, uh, to the race. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, 
it's kind of funny because like Lindsay had the lowest VO2 max out of anyone in that household <laughs> at like 68 for like a girl. And like, it was all just like, and we would just tra like train together and like mountain bike together and run. And um, like those guys all had the potential, I guess, to be like, you know, really great um, OCR athletes. But I guess I just like, like stuck to it and like went to the races and like put in the work and like did things like that. Whereas, um, they were like uh working and like <laughs> doing yeah. and like i was like oh i'm gonna like sign up for this race and train super hard for it and win an atv whereas like um like those guys are just doing other stuff so um yeah that makes sense what do you think what do you think it is because you see i mean over the years we've had more accomplished athletes come into this sport you know runners or whatever else and like it's so rare that one sticks like they come, they take their lumps and nine out of 10 times, they just leave with their tail between their legs. Why is that? What do you think it is? Is people aren't really, they've already worked hard for success and they don't want to start back from the bottom or what do you, what do you think it is? Cause it sounds like your, your household is full of guys that could have been decent if they wanted to. Like, what are we missing here? Yeah. I mean, we, I think we have the prize money. I think there's, well, I mean the perfect um, example of this is like Lance Armstrong coming to Spartan race. Like he's like a massively accomplished cyclist and um probably one of the uh better or best endurance athletes um of our time comes to does a spartan race and gets obliterated 70 second i think he took 70 second in the in the elite wave yeah like 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 that guy is a walking ego so like you like he's not going to come back and get his like like his ego smashed again when he's already like won the tour de france like it's like Mm -hmm. like what's like what's the point where's the incentive um i'm sure if he had won he would have kept going with it um but yeah there's a lot of like intricacies within ocr and within spartan that uh most sports tend to like push out like to be a really good cyclist you basically have to have zero upper body so uh and because it's like all about power to weight and it's all about your endurance engine so like these guys lost the ability to do a pull-up like 20 years ago. So you get them on an OCR course and they just can't do it. And it's like, it's like that across the board. It's like any sport usually like kind of, uh, favors like w one set of muscles or one set of motions or, um, things like that. And athletes, uh, there's not a lot of complete athletes, I think, um, at the high end. Uh, because the amount of work that it takes to become an Olympic rower or whatever it is um, negates them from doing other things. <clears throat> and it's also like a lot of coaches, like if you're a, whatever, if you're an Olympic cross-country skier and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to like go rock climbing this weekend. Like your coach would be like, nah, you're not going rock climbing. Like we can't risk you breaking your ankle. And, um, and I guess for me, I've always kind of lived uh, the... I've always like hated that mindset. I'm like, man, like I'm not going to live my whole life just like afraid of getting injured. Um, like I think you can take reasonable risks in your sport and like not um, do stuff. Like I wouldn't go free solo L cap or anything. Um, Cause that's like way beyond my scope and like a massive potential for injury. Um, but I'm going to go mountain biking still and I'm going to like do stuff like that. And I'll go, someone asked me to go white river rafting sure i would go like it's like it's part of living 
How does a guy then who's so focused on mountain biking come right into OCR ready to go? Like, what were you doing in your life that had set you up? Because if you were the typical mountain biker, yeah, there's more core strength involved in other upper body, a little bit more than like a road cyclist. But uh, what? how did you make that transition so easy then? What were you doing that others weren't? Well, I mean, actually, as a mountain biker, I always had a bit more upper body strength than people I was competing against. And, um, and then I was actually doing a ton of trail building, which is kind of like very physically intense and um just doing things that involved my whole body like all the time um and so and then i was actually started running like a quite a bit um towards the end of my mountain biking career my buddy was like hey let's go run this 50 mile trail and i was like sure that sounds really fun so i just like ran a bunch to get ready for it and i would like go out on the weekends and run a marathon and um so then we went and ran this 50. So I was like, I was like basically doing what I am now, but just without like a, a plan about it. I was just like, Oh, doing a bunch of like intensity on the mountain bike, a bunch of like easy miles running. And like, and then they would just like kind of like slot together with like all this other um, like physical work I was doing. And, and I always would do like pull up workouts and um, strength workouts and, like living in that household with those two guys and Lindsay, we would like, we had this whole week, like every week it was like the same. It was like Monday was easy. Tuesday, it was tempo Tuesdays. It was like wild Wednesdays where we'd go on just like, a, like a crazy, like either run or bike ride. And then it was like threshold Thursdays where you would just like smash threshold and then like easy Fridays. And then the weekend would be epic. And like, so it was like, it was like great training and um, always fun. That's interesting. And I do, I do want to get to what you did then coming from that to become who you are, that whole, tr how, how your training changed over time. But you touched on something that has always intrigued me and not just touched upon, you kind of identified it, but you said that like the better someone gets at their sport, the more fine tuned and they get rid of anything that's not needed for that sport. Totally. And it's almost like this huge limiting factor where the very, very best pinnacle of a sport are generally pretty bad at everything else either because they don't have those skills and they're just so uniquely genetically gifted towards that one thing, or they have to eliminate those pieces from them. Like a great yeah. marathoner cannot do anything but marathon. Totally. And a, a Tour de France cyclist just can't do anything else. Do you think OCR will, like, will our sport have really arrived and peaked when people finally fit one body type and one training style and it starts to exclude other things? Or is the nature of our sport going to always be inclusive of multiple body styles and multiple training styles. I mean, I think there is a body type already that has emerged from OCR. It's like, uh, but it's not yours. No. Well, it's like, it's like there's a body type, but it's like a broader body type. Like okay. everybody is lean. Everybody is like, has some upper body strength. Like there is, there is kind of a body type, but it's, a, it's also a bit fluid. And I think that's because, there's a there's a a pretty wide variance in the courses that we're expected to do and stuff yeah. and so someone who um someone like me can make up time on like a heavy carry and then be right there with uh someone like um i don't know someone who's just like maybe lighter and maybe faster up the hills and stuff so mm -hmm. uh yeah there's like enough elements where 
there's like crossover. I think if there was like a massive standardization in the sport where it was taken to, if it, if it was like, okay, from now on, every OCR race is going to be relatively flat on like easy trails with like these 10 obstacles. Um, then I think like a, a body type and a training style would, uh, emerge more prevalently. Mm-hmm. Um, and already there's obviously a lot of ways of training for OCR. And I think some of them have more merit than others, but also yeah. training is, is largely, um, not largely, but training is to a certain extent dependent upon the person and their individual responses and also their, um, their backgrounds and, um, and really their psychology too. Like mm-hmm. you look at, um, like some people define themselves as like being a strong athlete. Like you look at someone like Ryan Kent, he's like, he, he wants to have that look of like having biceps and having pecs and like, um, for him, appearance is really important. So he's like, he does this training to like, to look a certain way and then does this other training to be fast. And so there's kind of like this, um, this weird, like, uh, I guess, disconnect there between um yeah like appearance and performance and training and like his psychology dictates his training to a certain degree um it's funny that if if he dropped 15 pounds he might be worse at our sport because he won't have his his confidence in killer instinct anymore right exactly and that's like that's exactly like the psychology of it it's like oh this this con this like look and this training gives him confidence and it gives him a persona and that gives him his ability to attack on the course. And if he took that away, uh, maybe on paper, he'd be faster, but maybe if he took the whole season, he would perform worse or something like yeah, that. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of different factors. <laughs> there are. Do you ever wonder if your structure and stature will be, ever a detriment to yourself as a racer do you think that you'll ever get to the point where you realize like i just have to be way skinnier because there's too many tahoe type courses and the carries get lighter or do you think you're that's not going to be your limiter in sport um i don't know i think that again like it really depends on where they go with the direction of course design and Mm -hmm. things like that um i think that i've kind of kind of gotten I mean I'm I'm always learning and I'm learning about how to be a better racer and how to train better and how to get more out of my training and how to perform better and um kind of taking those lessons uh into my next races and so uh I think if I keep doing that and I keep having like an open perspective on you know what those things are and what those effects you know to my training uh, are um that I shouldn't, I shouldn't be like left behind, I guess. No, oh, I agree. And, I, and Kirk, I know you have some things you want to get to. So I just have one last follow up on this. Yeah, do you think? Because I'm, I've always been curious because you are one of the, you are the single most consistent person in the sport. And I think you have the greatest range our sport has ever seen, but you also are one of like the three or four body outliers. If you were to take our whole sport and plug them into cycling, or triathlon or running, you would be right. one of the people that the experts, quote unquote, would be like, well, this guy can't be good at this. Right. Because you have that look. So I guess my final question with this is if our sport did get more standardized, 
and I'm not leading anywhere with this. I'm just truly curious. If our sport got to the point where you had to choose, like, I have to look like VJ, or I have to look like Mark Batras, or I have to look like um, you know, any one of the really, really lean, thin runners, yeah. would your love of sport and competition drive you to become that? Or would you say, would that be a deal breaker to you? Like, no, nah, I'm going to go keep living the lifestyle I want and pursue something different. Yeah, I mean, I think... Well, honestly, I think that if it came down to that, I think that it would change my, I think the biggest thing I'd have to change would be my training, um, my approach to training. And I think that um, I would never be the size of Mark Batris, but I might be closer to his size if I um, changed my training or did something like that. Um, But that wouldn't be a deal breaker to you? No, I don't think so. I mean, like, I ran a 32-minute 10K at, like, 174 pounds a few years ago. It's like, yeah. um, like that's not that slow. It's no. uh, Okay. Now, you don't – if I'm not mistaken, I've seen you, I think, post about this, or maybe it was a brief conversation we had, but uh, you don't touch weights, do you? Not really, no. Yeah, like, if you wanted to be the size of, let's say, Hunter McIntyre – it's like you could give you six months and a barbell and you might get yourself there. Is that correct? Like, aren't you predisposed to being like a bigger muscly guy? And this is like a small version for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. I, I almost do. The only weights I touch are for like uh, injury prevention, mobility, um, those kinds of exercises. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty certain that if I like did Hunter's training, and ate a ton for six months, I would be the size of, yeah, him or like a Rich Froning or something like that. I would be. So this is your baseline level of, of mass? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> That's crazy <laughs> to think. Yeah. Yeah, wild, yeah. Do you think you got this like really strong core um, when you're just looking at you physically? And I always wondered if that, and I don't want to touch on unicycling anymore than you already have, but do you think that goes back to something as simple as unicycling? Like having a core and body awareness, or is it the rock climbing, or is it just your build in general? What do you I think? think? You, I think you hit on it there with body awareness. I think that um, years of competing unicycle trials gave me a really good body awareness through time and space. Like if I'm airborne or if I'm running, then that relates to like technical running, that relates to going through obstacles, that relates to how to apply musculature in an efficient way uh, at a specific time. And that's like a more of a neurological learned thing. I mean, any mm-hmm. core strength that I would have had seven years ago from doing tons of unicycling has long since um, left me. And it's like replaced with whatever core strength I have from running and from doing core exercises and from biking and things like that, that I still do a lot. Um, but I think the, like the neurological adaptations that I would have had, um, doing that, uh, would still be around. Okay. You said something, um, so you went, you went to university and then you went to school all of whatever, four years there. And then you went and you went to like the regular workforce right after that as an engineer, right? Like you completed school, went in on to be an engineer. Yeah. So you only did that for a one year. Is that right? And then you were like, screw this. I think I can make a living some, somehow else. Or? Well, it was kind of like I worked for like maybe a year, year and a half, like full time as an engineer. And then um, I got asked by a friend who had like an obstacle racing company here in Canada um, 
that actually did really well. Um, if I wanted to like spend the summer, like basically April through like September working on their build crew and like building obstacles and like yeah. traveling around. And I was like, hell yeah. Like that sounds awesome. So like they paid me really well. So I like quit my engineering job. I was like, I'll go do this. And then fall came around and they were like, Oh, we really want you to come back and work engineering. So I like would do that and I'd go back and work there in the winter. And then, um, and then I opened my own trail building company in the summers. So I was like, kind of like doing that. I would like build obstacles and like build trails for people and stuff like that. And, um, and things like that. And so it was kind of like this, like weird world where I was building obstacles for the obstacle race company. I was building trails, uh, for, you know, private or public, um, use. And I was working engineering kind of in the winter. And so they had these like three, uh, competing, um, income streams. And then from there I discovered OCR. And so it was like, Oh, the first thing to go was, um, was like working, uh, like, you know, in the winters at my engineering job. And then like, but I was still like building trails when I could. And when I was around, I would like be like, get this contract. And, okay. I've got a week and I will go to build this trail. And, um, and then they were like, yeah, can you work this time to come and build obstacles? So I do that. So there was like, there's a lot of overlap where I was like mostly racing like full time, but also still doing, um, other work, uh, on the side. And then after a couple years of that, it was just, it got to the point where it was like, I was doing well enough in OCR and traveling, um, like enough that it was like hard to, you know, manage all the travel plus doing other work plus, you know, the racing and the training. And so, um, yeah, I just said I'd do it full time. Uh, did you like own, so you had your own trail, like you owned equipment with this trail building company and you like did the real deal, got contracts, went to yeah. state parks or city venues or private. Yeah, totally. Yeah. From start to finish. That's badass. I got a, an athlete of mine who does that and I know the inner workings and that's like, that'd be like 12 hour days on your feet, cutting down trees and laying, you know, whatever you got to do to get through that. Oh yeah. Good. It's pretty badass. Yeah. If you want to get really strong, just, <laughs> just build trails by hand. Like... <laughs> I don't think I've ever done anything as hard as that, like to this day. I remember you made a a post after people were asking why, like Battle Frog and Hobie's Extreme Nation race, like why why the farmers carries didn't affect you as much. And you made a post about like, yeah, I carry two five gallon jugs of gasoline out to my work site and back every yeah. day, like yeah. thousand meters. Like yeah, sometimes things start to make sense. Yeah, sometimes you'd be you'd have to walk your gas in like yeah, like for like half an hour. <laughs> yeah i just find it funny like everybody everybody's not everybody but i'm gonna say like the majority of people who are accomplished in this sport been like training for the sport for years without like knowing it like the build-up like you look back in hindsight and you're like oh yeah trail building help and mountain yeah. biking help and totally. this help it's just interesting because a lot of people like to speak like in anomalies like oh ryan atkins just came from nowhere and was a unicyclist and that's all we think we know about you were a mountain biker now he's this accomplished athlete and you've just been laying, you've laid so much hard work down for years and years without knowing the payoff at the time. Right. Totally. I, yeah. I don't know. I just think it's worth acknowledging because some people like to speak to like the accomplished people like these freak, these freak chance athletes who just show up and suddenly are great and they don't see a decade of like relevant work done before they found OCR. Totally. Yeah. That's I mean, exactly it. I used to like training for mountain biking. I used to like train my ass off. Like, 
like just do crazy workouts and like so much like so much endurance building um on the bike which like which transfers right over to running but like if you come from like a running background or if you're like oh i want to train for ocr i'm going to do these like 45 minute like run workouts and like do that it's like well like you know i was spending like five six hours a week at threshold and then like another like you know Mm -hmm. 10 hours a week um above and below it so it's like yeah you can't really you can't really like replicate that if you're just like coming in from nowhere and just like wanting to become an ocr athlete there's like a lot of uh i think i think training on the bike is like a really under under kind of like utilized thing um in our sport because you just can't do the same kind of volume on foot it's interesting we had john yatsko on a couple weeks ago and he's always a trip to talk to but he's also pretty opinionated on certain things and and he loves cycling he cycled across as much as anyone i know probably outside of you guys but he also made the statement like if you want to be a good runner don't cycle right he said like i love spending time on a bike but it will make you slower and there's merit to that. But what a lot of people don't get is that you can train maybe 15 hours of running a week, and that's kind of cooking it a little bit much. Yeah. You can put in 20 to 30 miles, 30 hours on a bike with the same or less physical impact cost. And you just yeah. can't replicate that engine building. Like you talked about five to six hours of threshold in a week. Can you yeah. imagine a runner trying to put five hours of threshold work yeah. in a week? He'd be destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's that engine development that like you can't quantify engine development. Yeah. yeah. And there's actually a caveat to what John Yatsko would have said. Um, and I agree with him. If you want to run really fast on flat terrain that yeah. uh, mm-hmm. doing a lot of biking is not, especially like, like not focused biking is probably mm-hmm. not going to help you. Cause it's just going to like, kind of take away from it it's going to take away from your leg speed but in a sport like ours where you're running on variable terrain you're running uh when you're like under load you're running with a sandbag you're having to switch gears you're having to run up mountains and down mountains like there's a very little running that actually looks like good um Mm -hmm. in our sport Mm -hmm. and in that case doing like riding your bike up a hill like as hard as you can go is like very similar to running up like a steep hill um, as far as like the leg motion, the musculature, uh, recruitment, like so many things. Um, and so, yeah, like he's, he, I think we're both right in that respect. Like, yeah. like going and riding his bike, you know, across America is not going to make you a, much of a faster runner. Like it'll help more than just sitting on the couch, but it's not going to be as good as like running track repeats, but, right. uh, but like going out on group rides and like smashing yourself for four hours on a bike and then transferring that into a run speed um, can be really beneficial. Yeah. If you wanted to make the Olympic trials or the Olympics in track, you better spend every ounce of your energy running, but riding across America is going to make you a better hundred mile run racer. Right. And yeah, yeah, specificity, I guess of sport, but our sport Everything is specificity, you know, to some extent, like totally. engines, engine. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I firmly do believe, and he did it and that's fine. But I think Kirk and I both believe that if you can bike uphill, you can run uphill. Right. And that there is more carryover than people would imagine. Yeah, totally. Like you look at a guy like, um, like Wood, like Ryan Woods is a great uphill, um, 
off a runner and like you put him on a bike and I've like raced with him in Zwift and like the virtual world. And he's like, he's strong on a bike. Um, and it's like very applicable. Um, there's actually a runner who used to race on the track out of Canada, who was like, I think he's like a four minute miler and like awesome, really good runner. And he switched to road racing. His name is Mike Woods. He switched to road racing and now he races like Tour de France level. And like, he literally just took his like engine from, running like tons of track but like and some getting injured and just like it transferred like right over into like world tour level uh road cycling fitness um and like you watch him run like you watch him like ride up a hill and it like it looks like he's running like his like, yeah. when he stands up out of the saddle and starts rocking it like it looks like he's running and it's like it's pretty cool so like there can be a lot of tra- trans yeah. transfer yeah, and like from a personal standpoint, I took the opposite route to get here that you did. We both played multiple sports, but then I went to university and I worked for four minutes, four and a half minutes max right. on the track for five years. Yeah. And when I carried over, I had all the running skill and efficiency you could ever want in this world mm-hmm. outside of being just better than I was. But like I was super efficient at what I did. But even to this day in this sport, like every minute past five minutes, my effectiveness drops. There's right. a reason I've never won a beast against good competition. Yeah. And there's a reason I have to get lucky to place in a super. It's like, it's not science. It's, I mean, it's not rocket science. Right. I didn't spend hours working. I spent yeah. hours running, but I, it's, it's just like, yeah. there is you, something that even unicycling for an eight hour day, having fun prepared you for our sport better than five years of college running prepared me for this sport. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like, like you said, you were working really, really hard for four minutes and then yeah. like you'd probably recover and like, yep. Even if I tripled in a meet, yeah, I had 35 to 40 minutes between each f- two to four minute bout. Yeah, exactly. In your career, how many times have you raced four minutes or less in an OCR race? Never. Right. So like, what? there was no point. Like I would never recommend my route to get here. Right. And that's not why I'm the like, that's my genetics too. But totally. I think life could be a little different if someone like myself spent 20 hours a week on a bike for four years and right. then tried to see what they could do. So yeah, I, I like, I like your approach to things where volume definitely trumps really, really specific, like putting yourself into a tiny box. Well, yeah. And it's progressive volume. It's building, mm-hmm. I mean, over the, like I've been building my yearly volume like in a systematic manner for 12 years. Like I used to train 400 hours a year and now I train like 900 and it's like every year has been like a 5% increase. And it's like, and that's really the only way of doing it. You can't just get off the couch and start doing 900 hours a year or you're just going to destroy yourself. Um, And like speaking to uh, what you were talking about with efficiency of, of running and efficiency of movement, and things like that, which I know I lack. Um, but like, I think for myself, it almost is a bit of an advantage because, uh, because I just can't run that fast. I can't, like, I literally don't know how to run at like a four minute mile pace. I don't, my legs don't, can't move that fast and I just don't know how to do it. And, um, boom. So if I'm, if I'm doing like, I say a beast race, people go out and they start running like really, really hard, like at a high percentage of, and because they can run that and because they have been doing 400 meter repeats. Um, but then 
they operate at the super high percentage and then they're like kind of burning the candle really fast and then their pace kind of drops off once you start adding in the obstacles and stuff like that. And for myself, I'm running at like, I'm running slower and I'm running at like, you know, 80% of my capacity. And then once we start hitting the obstacles and then once we get over an hour, an hour and a half, I'm just keep ticking along at the same pace. And so it's like that, um, that like staying power and that, Mm-hmm. Um, almost like that ability to run really fast for a short amount of time is like in a way almost detrimental to yeah. uh, certain events mm-hmm. that we do because it like oh, allows sure. people to overcook their themselves because um, they're like oh I'm doing so great this is great I'm in second place like I feel great I like oh I ran like oh I ran a mile last week in 440 like and now I'm cooking along at 450 like I feel okay and then they get to mile three and they're like completely smoked and you add in like a couple sandbag carries and stuff like that. And then they're just they're Yeah, they're gone. So but you probably, you could chalk it up as well as, I mean, I would say one being a master tactician two you probably know your body pretty damn well at this point. Don't you, you're a student of your own body's performance. So yeah, I would assume that's some wherewithal too, isn't it? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, I've like won races or like podium races before where, it's just come down to like having this smart, like racing smarter than other people. And it's like, well, let's talk, let's talk about Jacksonville actually earlier this year real quick, because everybody was building this up to be this flat. Okay. As a guy who says he doesn't have the most flat speed in the, in the, uh, you know, in our sport, you went out and I'm going to say one Jacksonville handily early this year, on supposedly going to be the shortest, flattest, fastest course that we've seen in a U.S. national series race. I don't think that as good as you are, and you never should bet against Atkins, as most people have learned, how you still went out and won with pretty, you know, with authority. So how, do, how does that happen? Like, tell, how do you, how do you, how was your build to that? And how did that translate to that race? Like, I think a lot of people are curious about that. Something Bracken and I actually discussed on one of our early podcasts saying Atkins on paper probably isn't the guy that should win this race, but yet he went out and won it. So right. Why? Why'd you win that race? Yeah, I mean, well, I got a treadmill, which was cool. Um, <laughs> I've never had a treadmill okay. before. So, I mean, going down to Jacksonville, um, I was basically only skiing and riding my fat bike because, I mean, it's just, there's, it was February, it's tons of snow here. Um, so I started running on the treadmill like uh, like three times a week and just doing, uh, basically running the pace that I thought I'd need to run at Jacksonville um, and like dividing those, those paces up um, with other work and with some strength and with some carries and with some pull-ups and things like that. And, um, and I just basically like running on the treadmill really sucks, but it's uh, it's also effective and it's also kind of was my only option because like there was like three feet of snow outside, all the roads are covered in, like either snow or ice. So like you just can't run fast when there's ice and snow on the roads outside. Um, so I just run on the treadmill and then I was doing just a ton of skiing and, um, yeah, we came to the race and I was confident. I was like, yeah, I know I can run, uh, like just over like a three minute kilometer pace, like pretty comfortably. Um, kind of like for, you know, 10, 10 K. Um, and so I would just, 
go. I would do the obstacles as best I could. I would do the carries as best I could. And then um, I was kind of like, every time I would get out in front, I wasn't really trying to get out in front. I would just like hit an obstacle and do it faster than people, or I would hit a sandbag and get a gap on the field. And so I would kind of like run at, say, you know, 95% of what I could be running at. So I would just like settle into like maybe like a 320 kilometer pace. Sorry, I'm using kilometer paces. It's just, um, so yeah, I would like settle settle into that pace. And then like someone like Kempson or VJ would like work their way back up. And I knew that every time they did that, they were like crushing themselves. And I was like Mm -hmm. super cozy, just comfortable. And then, um, right after the spear throw, there was like this probably the longest running section on the run. And Kempson closed the gap on me and came around me and I was like, all right, like, I guess now's the time to like start racing. And so I just, uh, I passed him. I just like sat on him until we got to the bucket carry. And I was like, maybe like heart rate 165, just below threshold. And I picked up the sandbag or the uh, bucket and just ran it. And then I just kind of, um, and that like totally broke him. And VJ was way back there. And so I just like kept it there and just raced to the finish. And it was like, um, yeah, I don't know. It was just like a really controlled race. I was like in control. I never really had to work that hard in the race. And I was comfortable with the runs and I was comfortable with all the obstacles and it just worked out well for me. You were, you were the only guy watching that race back. I was a ways behind you a minute and a half or so, but like, or two, but um, that looked actually comfortable in that race. And it actually kind of surprises me to hear because that was, you know, a junky race. There was a lot of uneven, like just slow footing, which is not like a treadmill. Yeah. So I do. I would like to think that your strength as an athlete, like you just your even like your mountain running translated to a sloppy course, your big underlying engine translated to that sloppy course. Totally. Would you credit more of more of your win there to that or more of your win to like the specificity leading up on the treadmill and all of that? I mean, both for sure. I think the other thing that gets uh, kind of maybe brushed under the carpet is like, like those guys, when we got onto that, like those like soft muddy sections and I had a 10 second gap, like you have to work so hard to close those gaps in the Mm -hmm. mud, like running through like ankle deep mud, trying to like, trying to like, like, oh, it's crazy to to even Mm -hmm. go like 10%, 5% faster. um, He's burning like, 30% more energy than me and I was just like all right like go for it and like kind of like biding my time um so yeah there was like definitely tactics um there was leg speed there was like underlying engine and um like you said I guess uh like technical running abilities um yeah I watched that race with my wife and coming off of the z wall I looked at her I said it's over (laughs) <laughs> like it's, it's already over because yeah. having watched you and you probably don't realize how much the rest of us focus on you. Like I've spent, I spent three years telling myself I was better than you because I beat you in the first race we ever ran when I had been doing the sport for two years and you hadn't run a real OCR yet, but I beat you in that race. And so in my mind, I was better than you. And every time for the next three years, it didn't matter that I lost every time. It was like, as the competitor, I'm like, I'm better than this guy. I'm going to beat him next time. And so I just like, I thought about you every race and I, so I watched you race a lot and I finally like just had to admit, like, I'm not better than this guy. And I realized all the things you were really good at because I spent so much time trying to be better at you than them. 
right. from like 2013 to 2016. Like it was, I wanted to beat Hobie for the first three years and then beat you for the next year. Like that's all my life like revolved around for a while. I suddenly saw like all those things in that race since I was watching from my couch. I just right. said, Lisa, it's over. Like you came off that with a seven second lead. Yeah. And we instantly knew what was going to happen. VJ, Kempson, Woods, they were all going to have to, like you said, over rev to catch you. And then they were going to catch you and put a second, maybe, but then they yeah. were going to be 20% more in debt. And yeah. then you were going to come off the next obstacle ahead because you got to regenerate a little bit on that flat. And then totally. we were going to get to the point where everyone's cards were all on the table by the time we got to the carries except yours. Because you were the only yeah. one who wasn't fighting every run section. It was just like, it looked like a masterclass of what you should do to control a race from the front. And I always think about technical running, like making a solo break in cycling. Like once you get above like 20, 25 miles per hour, it's so much exponentially harder to fight the wind totally. than it was at 18. And that's what the mud is. Yeah. Like for them to run, like you said, seven seconds faster over that quarter mile, uh -huh. it took a hundred percent more energy, totally. not just seven seconds. So yeah. It was crazy just to watch you deplete their fuel tank, deplete, 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 and then okay, I'm in sight now. Now I'll start racing. Yeah. It, it was just, it was really cool. To, and Kirk and I talked about this. It was really cool to watch that race and realize obstacles and strategy still matters in the sport. Mm. Because sometimes we get to these courses where we're like, man, all that matters is VO2 max and altitude acclimation. Right. Yeah. That's it. Like nothing else. Or all that mattered was descending for five miles fast. Yeah. It was, it was cool to be like, no, this still matters in the sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> let's talk let's talk about the races that you haven't won okay um how many times have you been runner up at spartan world champs five i think five which is incredible i mean that alone is just to speak to finish that high every time you go race there something i want to know is if you look back and all those second places is there one race where you look at one of those five and you look and say like fuck i should have and could have won if i if I did this differently, is there any of them or every single one of those five, when you cross that finish line, there was nothing more that you think you could have done. And I know it's easy in hindsight to go back and say, I could have pushed harder. I could have done that. So try to, we can leave that hopefully aside, but which race do you wish you could take back and, and re hit and win this, that sucker? Yeah. I mean the first Spartan worlds, if I had hit either of my spear throws, I would have won. Um, there's two spear throws and John hit them both and I missed them both. I had, I had only ever thrown a spear twice before that, and I'd missed those two. Mm. So I, I just assumed that everyone just mostly always missed their spears, and I just, <laughs> I don't know, I just <laughs> came up and just threw it, and then fucking Johns went in, and I was like, oh shit, I guess sometimes they do go in. Like I had no idea. <laughs> I mean, that one like stands out because that was like a, that was like kind of the only one where like for sure, I I like could have would have won. Um, won that race i think all the mm -hmm. others they were like you know like there's like oh if i had pushed a little harder here or if i had done this obstacle a little bit better um things like that uh like um where it might have made a difference i mean like mm -hmm. last year in tahoe i i like wasted a bunch of time like putting a jack like putting my jacket and my shirt in like a dry bag because i thought it was going to be I thought it was going to be like colder than it was. And I mean, I probably wasted 15 or 20 seconds. Um, I mean, not wasted. Cause I was like comfortable. So, I mean, I like, I wasn't like shivering and I wasn't like at risk of hypothermia. So that was a good thing. But I mean, I've never been cold in Tahoe before. So like 
That was probably mm-hmm. a mistake on my part. Um, and Robert was only like 15 seconds ahead of me at the end. Um, so, I mean, that could have made a difference. But uh, like you said, like there's so much could have, would have, should have done. I was actually probably the most proud of my uh, race last year. Um, <laughs> it was like I had just got back from Eco Challenge uh, like seven days before that. I hadn't, I hadn't run, um, you know, I really hadn't run – at all like in like a month leading up to that and i was just like so i just raced like i was like okay i'm just gonna race with like as much like intelligence as i can and like use what my body will give me and um stay positive and just like see what i can do and not like worry about everything and anything that goes wrong and like how much how terribly i feel on like the climbs and like how sluggish my legs are and things like that. So, um, yeah, I was like probably most proud of that performance and it ended up being a second. So it's like, I don't know. I don't really, yeah, Mm -hmm. it sucks to come second five times for sure. But it's also like, I think I did like a great season last year. And so I wasn't upset about it at all. People talk about what's the greatest championship performance ever in our sport. And sometimes people talk about Cody's win because it was, there's such a time gap there, but I would say that the best championship performance I ever watched was that one. Like pound for pound, I can't think of a better performance because I I can't think of outside of maybe John Elbin. I don't know if anyone else would have shown up to the start line having taken a month off of running before championship. Well, maybe your wife, since essentially, right. you know, she hid her stress fracture and didn't tell anyone about, it, which yeah. I really respect. Our sport is a sport of Instagram excuses right before the start line. So, like, yeah. I really respect the fact that she did that. But the fact that you went off and did a jungle adventure for a month and didn't run leading up to world championships. Like, can you right. imagine, Kirk, another athlete in our sport who was maybe like a top five favorite who said, you know, I think I'll take a month off, trash myself to peak for worlds like people just wouldn't show up Mm-mm. and if they did there would there would be there would be a lot of pre-race already excuses and i didn't see any of that from you in fact i saw you lifting weights with hunter mcintyre like three days before the damn world championship i was like oh atkins doesn't give a shit about this race he's already he's already written it off you're like heavy squatting yeah. at hunter's ranch it's three like days before the champs it's like literally impossible to go and visit hunter and not lift weights like it's like an impossibility like he's I was like, like damn it He's like, oh yeah, let's go lift weights. And you're like, even though I never do this, this sounds great. Like he's so psyched about it. Like, how could I say no? In the back of my head, I thought you'd definitely win if you went to squat it that day. That's what I thought. Yeah. I thought you won the world champs. There's this narrative in sports that the ultimate defining characteristic of a great of all time athlete is championship wins. And I think that's a false narrative. I think that the greatest definition of one of the greats of all time is consistency over time. Not anyone, but any great athlete can pop a race and win on a given day. Like we saw with Killian this year. It doesn't detract from his win, but he suddenly had a minute and a half lead just because everyone else screwed up. Like he earned his win, totally. but the chips fell into place and like no one has control over like the circumstances that pop up, but five second places is used as a narrative from a lot of people about why you can't be the greatest of all time. And other people are like, well, five second places is the reason he might be the greatest of all time. Like, 
Yeah. Like in football, they talk about, well, the quarterback never won the Super Bowl. He can't be the greatest. Right. When in reality, like being the greatest or the second greatest in the league for 10 years might just make you the greatest ever. So do you care about that narrative or do you care? Like, would you rather go 15 straight years of second place and have this great illustrious career? Or would you rather be a three-year flash in the pan who wins a title or two? Um, well, like, to be honest, um, I do prioritize consistency, uh, over like a single race performance. Um, I think it's also a lot to do with my mindset. Like, I think a lot of athletes will overtrain and lose a lot, lose a bunch of weight in order to do really well at one race. And, um, absolutely, which will absolutely detract from their long-term performance and development as an athlete. Um, so I've kind of always taken the other approach of like, you know, staying consistent and staying healthy and making sure like you have good hormone levels and, um, you're fueling your body and you're fueling your workouts properly. Um, instead of just like, like you said, having one good performance. Uh, I mean, I'd be psyched if I won world champs for sure. Um, I think I can do it. I think that it's like almost, it's almost becoming a statistical and, pro and like impossibility that I've like yeah. been within 30 seconds, like three or four of the times and, um, and not been the one to win it. Um, but again, it's like, uh, I've treated OCR as a career and I've wanted to do as well, uh, as possible over, you know, the entire season, um, uh, for a lot of years now, instead of just focusing on one race, um, and so that's what I've kind of tried to do and done, I guess. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but like, yeah, would I rather have won like once or like had 15 second places? I think 15 second places. Yeah. yeah. Something I wanted to ask you was, I think when, when people look at you, they think you're like the master of the long distances, you're a grinder. You have this amazing ability to go forever at a high rate of work. And when I, and I agree with what most people think that way, but what I think is this guy is a damn master of recovery. I think, how does this guy do what he does and then go back into heavy training or recover for your next event or some of the stuff you pick in your racing season and how you put it all together is astounding. I think your most oppressive ability is your ability to recover. And I'm speaking from not knowing you very well at all, just from the outside. So so how, so how do you, what is your recovery like strategy? How do you get, come back from Fiji and race well at Tahoe? How do you get done with a 24 hour race and or multiple world champs back to back and still perform? Like, what are you doing? Um, I think that one thing is to not, uh, to not kind of have too aggressive of peaks really, if you like peak really aggressively, then there's going to be like a natural, like massive, like drop off of performance afterwards. Mm -hmm. And if not, you're going to like absolutely destroy your body. If you try to like peak and stay there for a long time, like you're going to just, you're, you're going to get sick or injured or all of the above. Um, so like avoiding that. Um, so just having like a main, like a sustainable high level of fitness that you can like kind of take and adapt to, uh, to the course that you need. Um, I've also, like you said earlier, tried to like really understand my body and how it works. Um, one of the things I noticed is that, uh, I usually have like a pretty good boost in fitness. Um, 
like seven to 12 days after a big effort. Um, like, you know, and so I've, I've used that to kind of like as part of my training. And so if I, if I recover properly from like a really hard effort and do the training and the recovery in a way that I know how to, I can actually actually come back stronger from like, say running, um, like a couple of years ago, I ran a 50 miler and then I, I think I won a U.S. national series the next weekend. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was like the same thing. It was like, just like recover from that and, uh, kind of do the work you need and go race. Um, the other thing is a lot of people, a lot of like, there's a lot of companies who want to sell you like products that'll make you recover faster. Like, like there's a million things on the market. Um, you really can take any one of them and yeah, certainly some of them work and some of them work pretty well. Um, and some of them don't, but like anytime you're doing something like that, you're basically trying to like short circuit, like your, your body's like natural tendency to recover. So, I mean, I do use some of those recovery, like I'll, I'll you know, I'll roll my, my calves or, um, we've got Norma tech things that I'll like sometimes put on. Um, but I also consciously like don't use things like that. Um, a lot of the time and just let my body recover at its own pace which I think is a lot more like natural and sustainable um, in the long term. It's like having a car and like always like just always trying to tweak it for like the last little bit of like performance and like, like using those recovery tools is like trying to get that last bit of performance out of your car, like every time. And then eventually something's just going to like, eventually your engine is just going to explode. Whereas if you like just leave your car the way it came from the manufacturer and maybe like put super gas in it consistently. And then it's going to perform for really well for 12 years instead of like super well for like a month. And then like just be in the garbage heap, which uh, I think is how a lot of athletes, they just want to short circuit their training and their recovery. And, Oh, if I only take one day to recover instead of two, then I can do more training. And if I do more training, then I'll be able to do this and I'll be able to do that. And then I'll be a better athlete. And um, that, it's like that like philosophy usually there's a lot of athletes who will train and uh in a very short-sighted way i have two things to say about that first is i feel like you'll appreciate this i got a message last week two weeks ago kirk asked me during the podcast what race was i most when was the last race i was really proud of a race and i said montana 2016. i had a great block of off-season training i came out i executed the race and lost you by like 20 seconds that day and I got a message afterwards, like, man, I had no idea you were as good as Atkins that year. And I messaged back, like, Ryan ran a 50-mile race six days prior to that race. Like, the best race I ever had. We all finished the race, like, oh, man, we we prepped and peaked for this. And Ryan was six days out of a 50-mile race. So I feel like that, that right there just kind of encapsulates your ability to regenerate and refocus and get back and race, which clearly is, like, 50% you're doing stuff correctly. But you also have this, like, this gift for that. But I think one thing that your lifestyle does that people don't necessarily credit you for um, is the amount of volume you do directly, in my opinion, dictates how you handle large efforts. Like the yeah. runner who's doing 12 to 15 hours a week of workouts, and a lot of them are intense, does not handle a three hour race the same way someone who does 25 hours of combined training in right. a week. And the, totally. the amount of 
time on feet you spend and the pounding you can take without taking a huge level of pounding has to have a direct impact on your ability to regenerate after big efforts. Yeah, I'd say so. Ryan, I want to know, um, as we work on wrapping this thing up, um, obviously this season has been a little different than most because we haven't really had one. Uh, what, uh, what are your hopes or plans for sort of the second half of the year as far as racing goes? Where's your head at uh, with all that? Um, man, I am psyched to start racing again. Um, I am feeling fit and strong and fast, and I just... Um, yeah, I just want to start racing. Um, my plans, uh, I'm going to do West Virginia, and I'm going to do the rest of the U.S. National Series, and I'm going to do, um, I mean, if, if uh, Tahoe, which is the North American Championships, happens, I'll do that one. And I will do the Killington Ultra Beast World Championship, which I'm psyched about. Uh, that's only like two hours, three hours from where I live now, so it's like, it's really cool to be able to, like last year it took like, like 28 hours of travel to get to that race and this year it's like jump in the car and go so it's kind of like uh, the polar opposite um so i'm super psyched for that and also i think it's just going to be like savage like that that ski hill is uh every bit as steep as the one we raced in um in sweden and uh yeah that was a hard race and so this will probably be super hard too and then um, I want to ask you, what would you do if they decide to slap a U.S. National Series race in Killington the same weekend as a patch job? Because they're going to put two, you know, two U.S. National Series races. Sounds like they're going to make up sometime after West Virginia. What if they decide to put it in Killington for ease of use? Would you tackle both, or would you pick one over the other? Um, yeah, I might do both. Yeah, of course you would. Yeah. <laughs> of course you would. It's just an extra lap, right? <laughs> <laughs> no shit and and abu dhabi does the prospect of uh abu dhabi in december does that excite you they do you think oh if I, finally it's not at elevation or do you or are you like damn i wish it was at tahoe i think i prefer i would prefer for it to be at tahoe um but i think that abu dhabi presents like a new like challenge and a new technical challenge um to people uh, as to like how to train for it and how to run in that terrain and how to perform um, in those conditions. And I'm pretty like excited to like crack that nut, I guess. Mm -hmm. Having raced twice over there in similar terrains, I will say that it's going to have, it's going to be like a, a hilly Jacksonville where people mm -hmm. are expecting a certain type of race, but it's really rewards compromised engine right like it rewards getting in and out of everything and constantly having your legs sapped yeah and i i'd, I'd like your, your odds over there as much as yeah. i do at tahoe honestly sweet yeah so. yeah that's kind of what i thought i think um running in sand is never easy no yeah any non-ocr racing coming up you see a lot of guys are looking to start doing a lot more trail racing or racing some mountain races uh non-ocr you have any of that lined up or personal ventures that you're stoked about that we don't know about? I've been really wanting to go run the long trail in Vermont, um, which is a 270-mile um, hiking trail. Um, I mean, I would go tomorrow if the border was open, but um, the border's not open. And I, like, even though I, I literally live, like, less than 10 miles from where it starts, which is, like, the worst part. Um, it's, like, right there. I can, like, taste it. But, uh... <laughs> Which way would you run? Would you run home or run away? 
I'd run, I'd go southbound. I'd start at the north and go go south. Um, so, I mean, hopefully mid-July that opens up and I can go do it. Um, otherwise, uh, no real, like, projects to speak of. I might do everything on a bike maybe next week or something and um, just, like, keep doing fun things and keep training hard and... Um, there's not really any racing that's started back up in Canada. So, I mean, there's not like any trail races to even do. Um, like most of them got canceled until like September, you know, so. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's like a very different, I think it's a very different, uh, like situation in Canada. It seems like, um, in Canada, like it's been taken, like the whole COVID thing has was taken like maybe more seriously than in the U.S. Like things were locked down like earlier and like more aggressively, and for like a longer period of time. And I mean, likewise, we have way fewer cases, and like it's um like it's like almost almost all but like kind of disappeared. But uh, the Canadian government is really leery of letting Americans into Canada because of um, the difference of opinion and how to approach the whole thing. Um, so, mm-hmm. like, yeah, there's, like, a real concern about, you know, the, the border openings and allowing um, Americans in. So that's kind of where we're at. Well, Ryan, we could go all day, um, <laughs> but we're, we're at the end of our time here. All right. uh, I'd like to just say this is part one and eventually we'll catch up for part two. Cheers, guys. Yeah, that's fun. Thanks, Ryan.